0: Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe.
1: Hello. And welcome to KPMG's Tax Now podcast on new proposals for public disclosure and transparency. My name is Peter Oliver and I lead our international tax group here. Before introducing our panellists today, um, just to set the scene. So over the last decade, we've seen an evolving landscape around public disclosure on tax, really affecting multinational groups, including country-by-country reporting measures, um, the ATO's mandatory corporate entity tax reporting, the voluntary tax transparency code that came out of the Board of Tax, and a general focus in terms of transparency um, across the whole corporate tax landscape um, and things such as EU's public C by C proposals. We've got a new development here in Australia um, where we saw exposure draft legislation released on the 6th of April, 2023, to make our country by country rules uh, publicly disclosable and to expand what's reported underneath them. They're intended to apply from the 2023-24 income year when legislated. So today we're going to talk about those, but we'll talk more generally around how they sit in this broader landscape around transparency and what groups should be thinking about. Just to set the scene, one thing I'd like to just mention is in thinking about these new rules and the environment they're introduced, um, reflecting on Treasury's consultation paper released last year, which set out that the government's policy intent for those is to introduce targeted and balanced tax transparency initiatives directed at multinational enterprises that are intended to moderate corporate tax aggressiveness so there's a more informed debate around what level of tax should be paid by MNEs. So in the context of that policy setting and the new proposals, to introduce my speakers, today we've got a great panel. We have Jenny Wong, who is KPMG's ASPAC ESG tax lead and has thought deeply around these measures and transparency for quite a long while. We have Tim Keeling, who leads our transfer pricing practice, and Phil Beswick, who leads our tax governance practice. So welcome, team. Really excited to talk about this with you today. And Jenny, why don't we start with you? As I said, I know you've keenly followed the development of public disclosure rules in Australia and proposals. Uh, and can you just give us a bit of the history here around what we've seen over the last decade leading us to this point?
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Peter. So we started to see tax transparency frameworks around 2008, the global financial crisis, um, where there were revelations of, you know, aggressive tax planning by multinationals um, which led to concerns about, you know, were they paying their fair share of tax, where they operated? Um, these concerns informed the OECD's BEPS project in 2013-2015, which um, improved transparency was one of the key pillars. And it led to the adoption of the OECD Action Item 13 c reporting. And one of the essential features of that is the information is confidential between the multinational groups and the tax authorities. Um, public mandatory tax transparency frameworks actually has, have been in place since 2013, but they only apply to multinational groups in specific industries like um, financial services and extractives industries that have EU operations, so you know, Capital Requirement Directive 4 and UK Payments to Government Regulations, EU Directive Chapter 10, they're all familiar regulations to the extractive industry or the financial services in, industry. Um, In Australia, we saw the voluntary tax transparency code developed by the Board of Tax and endorsed by the government around 2016, 2017. And since then, we've seen multiple global tax transparency frameworks ranging from mandatory disclosures of tax strategy um, under the UK rules around 2017 to Global Reporting Initiative 207 in 2019, which provides a more holistic ESG lens to tax transparency reporting. And then you've also got the voluntary standards like the B Team, responsible tax principles, and the UN principles for responsible investments, which looks at it from the investor perspective. Now we've got mandatory public country by country proposals in Australia, which is expected to uh, kick in from 1 July 2023, pretty soon, and EU C by C reporting, which kicks in from 2024. Um, on top of all the transparency measures that we've already got. So that's where we're at at the moment. Thanks,
1: Jenny. Really good um, potted history there. And obviously a lot on the road travelled so far. Um, And so just picking up one of the themes, which I think I'd like to unpack a bit more amongst all of us uh, today, which I was talking about this afternoon with a client, was... um, Uh, how Australia sits amongst all of these global measures as they've evolved, and um, how what's actually proposed under the, the new regime really now sets us even beyond in, in, in what's out there globally uh, in terms of what might be disclosed. So, so let's talk about how Australia sits vis-a-vis other parts of the world as we, as we go through today. Um, but just coming back to the piece around public, uh, public disclosure, and Tim, so ever since we did get the OECD's final action item report um, in 2015 on Action 13 for, for CbyC reporting, there was a question about um, when or, you know, might we get public reporting requirements for for the C by C rules. And I think a lot of us expected that would eventually be the case. It was just a matter of of when that would happen. Um, How effective do you think existing C by C reporting is to address if the fundamental concern here is um, concerns of aggressive, aggressive multinational tax structuring? Is there, is that being addressed by C by C reporting? Is there a case for change to making it public now?
0: What are your thoughts on that? Thanks, Pete. And hello to all our listeners. I think it's a really good question. And it comes down to, as you say, what the concern is and whose perspective or whose, whose concern is it? And to give you some context, if you ask me simply, has C by C been a success? You'd say on balance, it has been. I mean, 10 years ago, no one would ever have fathomed that tax authorities would automatically exchange information about global multinationals and their footprints around the world. So in terms of that change and the scale of that change that's been incredible and it's fair to say tax authorities have used that information to great effect as jenny alluded to we had the gfc and the cause and effect of country by country was that tax administrations thought there wasn't a level playing field in terms of the information they could get about global operations versus what multinationals had it was driven by the gfc it was driven by um a concern regarding the substance or the economic profile of um of multinationals versus their legal form. And that's where, if you recall 10 years ago, things like um, double Dutch Irish sandwich um, was a common a common phrase. And those things are a bit of a thing of the past now because of this substance-based movement that we've had. So with 180 countries signed on, you'd say that tax authorities responded to public angst at that time about what was the primary concern. Fast forward to BEPS um, you know, and Pillar 2 and, and us, moving forward sorry, with Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, and the concerns have evolved and shifted. So the concern from the community has gone up again, but it's a slightly different concern because it relates to the things that are driving BEPS 2.0, such as the digitization of multinationals and whether those things are being taxed fairly. And so you say to yourself, well, is this concern now an old concern or dressed up as something new? And I think it's something new. Um, the concern for me is making sure that we balance appropriately um, you know, the need and the want for the societies to understand further the the way and how um, multinationals are paying uh, their tax and to do that balancing compliance costs in an appropriate way. So C by C has been effective in my view. It's been a success, but now I think public C by C is responding to a new concern and challenge. Um, And it's a challenge that I think um, is going nowhere. It's um, evolving and taking shape in various ways or forms. And we'll obviously go through those various ways and forms a little bit more on this podcast.
1: Thanks, Tim. I think that's really thoughtful um, because you're right – Digitisation and the way tax applies to digital businesses something that didn't wasn't really addressed in Beps 1.0, um, and so we're seeing that in Beps 2.0 more. So it's, I think that's a really really point well well made. Um, Phil, just before we move on, just from your perspective looking at it with a tax governance lens, um, your thoughts in terms of the drivers of these proposals?
3: Yeah, thanks, Peter, and hello everyone from my end as well. I think the way I, I summarise it has always been that tax is now a sustainability topic. You know, it's moved from a technical to risk management to a sustainability topic. And this means the public is very interested in subjects like tax fairness and how multinationals approach the management of tax You know, beyond that move that started with the GFC to a real heightened um, interest. And we've seen plenty of recent examples of that. For tax functions, this means public CBCR is not only about the reporting, but what does that reporting look like? What does that story look like in the hands of non-tax experts? So in, in, in framing, really, the consideration of these rules and the, and the updated version when they become available, you know, keeping in mind that wider perspective um, will, will be helpful, if nothing else, to identify the right internal stakeholders to engage with um, in understanding the the application or the potential application of these rules. Uh, and then Ian, the other be- topic beyond that is the the interest level of investors you know in, the, in this information and keeping that very much in, in mind and I think we'll come back to that as we proceed with the podcast as well. Thanks Phil.
1: So Jenny, tell us a bit about what the proposals actually are um, and when they apply from.
2: So Australia is proposing mandatory public country-by-country reporting requirements and they apply from 1 July 2023. Um, They affect both Australian and foreign-headquartered multinational groups with Australian presence um, and with annual global income of over a billion or more Australian dollars. And that's no matter how big or small your presence is in Australia. It's unlike the EU rules where there are some sort of de minimis tests um, depending on the size of your EU operations. Um, it will require groups to public, publicly disclose, um, firstly each entity in the group, um, secondly worldwide income taxes on a country by country basis, and thirdly mandatory disclosure of the group's tax strategy or approach to tax. It won't be just a matter of just publishing, um, you know, your tax transparency report on your website. Multinationals will need to like submit the data to the ATO in some approved form, and then make and then the tax office will make that available on Australian government website. Um, at this stage, there isn't any sort of categorical exemption if you already, you know, prepare public C-by-C reports um, under, say, the EU C-by-C rules or um, et cetera. But, you know, there is an inbuilt mechanism that provides Commissioner the ability to provide an exemption for, you know, certain entities or classes of entities. If there were two key themes from Australia's public C-by-C's, it would be this. Firstly, the Australian public C-by-C proposals draws mainly on the GRI 207 narrative component and the quantitative component. But secondly, Australia's C-by-C rules goes much, much further with some Australian-specific disclosures, like, for example, requiring BEPS Pillar 2 effective tax rate disclosures, international related party expenses, listing of tangible and intangible assets, And this has been subject of intense feedback during the submission process. Um, So I think also before you can understand the Australian C-by-C rules, you do need to understand the Global Reporting Initiative um, 207 standard um, and those two components that Australia draws on. Um, You know, the first component is, uh, so the Australian C-by-C leverages on The narrative component on GRI 2071, which is your approach to tax, and this is essentially a group tax strategy that most groups are very familiar with, Um, you know, ask things like does it get a board approved, what's your approach to regulatory compliance, but in addition, there's this added ESG lens to your approach to tax narrative that requires groups to articulate, you know, what's your approach to tax and how does it link to sustainability development goals. Um, I don't know, if you pick up some of the transparency reports, some multinational groups um, have been doing, you know, that some of them have been do it quite, you know, doing this component quite well, particularly those who, you know, done reporting for quite a few years, um, whereas others, you know, probably haven't mentioned and have got a bit of work to do in this space. Um, on the quantitative component of GRI 207, so G- Australian C by C leverages off GRI 207.4 on the data points and it's very similar to the OECD C by C reporting that, that um, multinationals are already doing. Um, the additional requirements are like firstly the numbers need to be based on order to financial statements um, and another key component of the GRI 207 is you're required to explain the tax effect difference between, say, the current tax expense and the statutory rate applied to profit and loss. And so what does that mean? Essentially, what it's asking for is you know, like tax incentives and preferential tax treatments in particular jurisdictions. Um, you know, and again, this data the data points have been subject to intense feedback during consultation process. Um, it's great if you've been complying with GRI 207, like some of the groups in the extractive industry, but for other industries, they're saying, well, why can't we just use the OECD C-by-C public, you know, um, data, C-by-C data we've done previously and make that public? Or why why can't we just use the EU C-by-C? But there's pros and cons of each framework, Pete.
1: And Jenny, so as you said, it's based off GRI 207. But it goes further, which comes back to that theme around, I think, how Australia sits vis-a-vis some of these global regimes, because this is asking for more. And you mentioned um, the ETR that needs to be disclosed, where Australia's going to require in the draft legislation, it says a Pillar 2 ETR. Um, uh, that's just one example um, of something that's interesting, that's different, and will require calculations before you need them for Pillar 2 purposes. So just in that overall perspective, it's interesting, you mentioned um, a lot of feedback around the rules, um, but interested in your thoughts there around where we sit relative to the rest of the world if they, these rules are enacted as per their draft form.
2: Yes. Um, so just in terms of, well, the different approaches that Treasury considered. Um, so we've got the confidential OECD C by C. Um, We've got the public EU C by C directive and we've got the GRI 207. Um, I I think Australia essentially has gone above and beyond, you know, um, the other global standards. Um, But I think also that following the consultation process, um, I think there will be some consideration as to whether you know we want to go that far in terms of requiring disclosures of intangible assets or tangible assets um and you know what's what how useful is that information i think you know going towards beps pillar 2 um in advance of actually having to do beps pillar 2 work um i think that's kind of sort of going above and beyond and you know perhaps it'll be paired back to more financial accounting related effective tax rate disclosures instead so i mean that's where i that's where i think it will sit I'm not sure if Tim or Phil has other views on that.
0: Yeah, Jenny, I mean, it's a really good point. I think I think when you talk about the the strong feedback, right, or any additional information can provide additional context, but I think the main feedback we're hearing is how much more is this additional information really providing on the economic footprint and the tax paid of, of multinationals, which is what C by C is supposed to achieve. And... it's if it's not achieving an incremental addition and it deviates from global standards that's going to cause problems the reason why initial c by c was so successful in its rollout and why multinationals voluntarily complied with it was because it was consistent you can't have 180 countries doing something very different i think there's a strong concern that when you have eu public c by c gri 207 some announcements coming out of the us australia really deviating with some additional aspects here that it's got to be very, very challenging for um, multinationals to comply if this, if this trend continues to numerous more jurisdictions. So I think to me, the consistency point becomes very, very important over and above some of the, some of the other practical challenges of data that we'll come to in a second.
2: And there's also like commercial confidentiality concerns that foreign multinationals have explained you know like for example if australia wants intangible assets are we requiring disclosure of trade secrets and you know how does that sit with their competitors and um is it a real sticking point in doing business in australia so um that's the only thing i wanted to add pete
1: No, really good point. I think it kind of picks up that what I was thinking about, Jenny, which is I was on a call early today with an Australian subsidiary of a Global Group, Um, and so they've got to report up to their global head of tax who's going to be responsible for this information um, and explain why this is needed. And so I think it goes, as you said, there are are issues around commercial confidentiality, Um, there are considerations around efficiency and benefit of this additional information from a global perspective, that, that, that global heads of tax need to think about. So, I think um, I, I'm certainly having conversations with clients that are scratching their heads of how this fits in. Um, and, um, you know, they're not necessarily easy conversations. Why don't we talk about um, something else that's new and different to some of the other global regimes, Tim, uh, close to your heart around the intangibles uh, disclosure requirements here? So, um, there, there are some new requirements here. And, and what should groups be thinking about given the requirement to disclose details of your intangible assets globally, both in these rules and then also separately the proposed new intangibles integrity rule that's uh, intended to apply from 1 July 2023, which has an incredibly broad definition of what an intangible is?
0: Well, as I was going to say it's, it's close to my heart, Pete, but it's probably close to yours in, in the international space as well. Um, this is a really interesting practical challenge jenny has touched on the confidentiality issues we've raised this in our submission and consultations with treasury as well a lot of multinationals if 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 the rules come out the way they're currently drafted could face real challenges in complying with that when we've talked about the word list we don't really know what that means um is a list supposed to be every single um patent or uh, you know um, prescription or molecule that a pharmaceutical may have for example was a list meant to be just um, broad categories um, and when you're thinking about intangibles in that context, that can be a very, very broad definition and go from anything which we know for in the traditional tax concept is, is a true intangible, such as a, a trademark, but it goes beyond the royalty definition as well because intangible, both in the C-by-C public legislation, which hasn't, hasn't been defined, but also in the intangibles denial legislation that you've mentioned, Pete, goes much more broader than that. So when people are just thinking about what are they going to disclose, particularly if it's in a jurisdiction that has a headline rate less than 15% when these, where these new rules really start to bite, have to be really careful, really, really careful. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is if, they're, they've, got a, um, if they've got an intangible there which has, um, sorry, in a jurisdiction that's below a headline rate of 15%, prima facie that might cause um, the ATO or other tax authorities to raise their eyebrows. But you've got to remember that with the additional data disclosures that are being required in this C by C, the ability or the, um, or certainly the risk that might be raised through um, what might be messages in that C by C table, either through direct tracing or indirect tracing to that jurisdiction, um, really start to bite. So. The intangibles legislation talks about a a jurisdiction, you know, um, receiving intangibles-related income either directly or indirectly. Combine that with some of these new disclosures that we have in the C by C, list of intangibles is the obvious one, but remember there's also other ones in there such as expenses from related related parties that actually provide a closer correlation. So as you're going through this legislation, you need to really be thinking about um, what is an intangible and hopefully we'll get better guidance on it um, in the in the next round of or when the bill is released, but also what is the traceability and how is that flowing through? Those two things combined are going to be really really important for um, for taxpayers to understand, and they're going to need to think about that um, very very quickly. And it's important. Finally, one more Pete, one more point, Pete. I should have raised is it's really important to note. You've mentioned the pillar two effective tax rate. That's not how the intangibles. Um, legislation or the tangibles deduction denial legislation is currently phrased which talks about headline tax rates or as you know pete it also talks about where you have multiple headline tax rates picking the lowest one so we could have some really interesting um disconnects here between what multinationals are thinking is their head, is their effective tax rate and what might actually be the, um, the real tax rate for different parts of the legislation that's being introduced. So they're probably my key points, but Peter, I'm actually going to throw it back to you just to see if you had anything to add, because I know you've been um, looking at this legislation really closely as well.
1: Yeah, I think you've covered that pretty well, Tim. Um, and the linkages between the public disclosure requirements here around listing your intangibles um, will give another tool in a sense of that data, that information to the tax office as they're thinking about um, the separate rule that is an integrity rule around intangibles. Um, so, there's a lot to think about, and there's similarities and there's differences here as to how they apply, as you've said there, between working out what's a good country or a bad country as far as the tax rate overseas goes. Um, and when I've had conversations with this with clients, because I had a number of conversations with clients about these rules, the disclosure rules, the intangibles rules. Oh, by the way, I've got thin cap changes coming too, this pillar two. And clients start to get really depressed about it. Um, and so it's really important, I think, just to step back and say, yep, there's a lot coming down the road right now. <clears throat> but, but let's think about this just methodically and clearly. What's happening in Australia? What are the flows offshore out of Australia? Um, and then let's think about practically what we need to focus on to get a plan to, to look at that. So I just think it's really important to to try and think of it in that context so it doesn't feel too overwhelming. Um, Phil, approach to tax. Um, So this is an interesting thing that Jenny um, described quite well before around something needs to be written there and given to the tax office and then they'll publish it. Um, It's not really clear how extensive or how much, much, you know, what's the word count you'll be allowed in terms of describing your approach to uh, to tax, sorry, Um, how is the ATO going to publish this? Um, And it could be quite limited compared to what a lot of groups currently put into their voluntary tax transparency reports at the moment, um, which include commentary and narrative around their contribution to the economy um, and how the group's tax flows from that contribution to business and the economy. So what should groups be thinking about now given you know, there isn't as much detail around uh, what might be disclosed, what should groups be thinking more widely about their tax governance disclosure strategy?
3: Thanks, Peter. Yes, it's, it is an interesting point, um, and I guess we may see more information in, in the updated you know, legislation when it comes through. And in some aspects, you are right. For groups already publishing a tax policy or publishing tax policy related information, there will be some way, if maybe even a long way down the road to meeting this particular requirement. And it's also quite interesting to see that in the draft legislation, they didn't also include GRI 207.2, uh, which is on tax risk management and governance in more detail. They've linked it more to GRI 207-1 which is this statement on approach to tax. So so in in one regard, it seems like they've reduced, actually, the scope of this requirement, um, or certainly it's not as expansive as it may have been, actually. Um, However, it's not quite as simple as that, and there are probably two ways that we need to think about it. Uh, First of all is there are some specifics in, in, for instance, GRI 2071, which are not always in current published published documents. Uh, but also there's a question of detail and, and nuance, which I'll come on to uh, secondly. But as Jenny has also touched on, in terms of the statement on approach to tax, one of the requirements in Giro 207 is information about how tax strategy or the approach to managing tax links to uh, sustainable uh, goals of the business, um and, and related ESG strategies. And that's not something that's common currently. And and thinking through what that looks like is, is an example of a, a new component, as I would say. There's also in GRI 2071, if we take that as the the basis of this statement of approach to tax, you know, some examples in their guidance around um, mentioning tax risk appetite and to which and to what extent you accompany um, uh, always keeps within that tax risk appetite and what is beyond that tax risk appetite. And that's, you know, quite nuanced as we know, and, and typically up to now being quite broad and, and not too prescriptive. So it will be a bit of a, a journey, I think, um, as to how groups will respond to that. But perhaps more importantly is, you know, what's not in the specifics of the guidance um, on this area that groups need to keep in mind. And as I mentioned before, there's questions on the level of detail. And for instance, one of those is this uh, approach to compliance and they give examples in GRI of um, following the letter and the spirit of the tax law. right? And so to what extent are groups comfortable in, in saying those, making those sort of statements and be able to back it up with, with real information if, if there is scrutiny on, on this and underlying all of this is what um, comfort will the board need in making these types of statements Um, especially if it touches on areas which are not currently in the policy and hopefully to some extent the policy will be helpful and can be updated and and re-endorsed by the board but it may not be you know as straightforward as that and lastly you know um We need to see what happens over time, of course, but there might be an opportunity to, to your point, Peter, of going beyond the bare minimum. So for groups who have a wider story to tell, which is not just on income tax, which has been the focus up to now or in the exposure draft, you know, for many groups, their contribution to society is about the other types of taxes. Um, and maybe there's an optionality there. We'll have to see in the legislation and see what the market does to to use that broadness um, in a way that tells a wider story. But it also could well be the case that many groups will continue to publish their own report differently. Uh, on their own websites, um, and that's where they tell this wider narrative uh, as well. So starting to form a view on what sits in the compulsory reporting and what may sit outside of that compulsory reporting shared with the ATO will be yeah part of the decision-making for, for many groups, I would say. Thank you, Peter.
1: I, I think it's a really interesting point, Phil, about how what role might play for groups that currently do voluntary tax transparency reports, whether they keep that in that form or some other form that they, 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 they want to maintain that narrative to the market, that can be in their format as opposed to this compulsory format. Um, and then I also wonder for a lot of um, foreign headquartered groups that don't currently produce tax transparency reports, um, whether they should start thinking about doing something to partner with whatever... Um, mandatory message might need to come through and what that looks like so I think there as you said they're things to play out we're not quite sure what that will look like and what it will mean but there's much to think about with the overarching um, strategy around transparency and governance for an organisation now isn't there
3: that's right Uh, um absolutely and and maybe it will be another catalyst for groups to uh further their journey on tax governance I'm sure it will be um and and there will be some specific aspects to that on compliance. Uh, a good example, I think, of this is that, um, you know, if you have had compliance failures, how do you talk about your approach to compliance, which is a core part of GRI 2071? So there will be some you know, nuances there required to to crafting that narrative. Good, good uh, things to
1: think about. Okay, so team... There's a huge amount. We've scraped the surface, but but I think we need to close with one final question um, for each of you. And so, Jenny, let's start with you. What do you think groups should be doing now to prepare for these changes?
2: Yeah, sure, Pete. So, um, look, clearly we've got a global trend of mandatory, you know, country by country reporting and, you know, other mandatory legislation on tax transparency. You know, we've got EU Australia, GRI 207, um and it's going to be a challenge there's going to be a lot of uh overlapping inconsistent c by c rules but i also think there will be a shift in uh mindset from you know c by c just being mere compliance you know reporting mindset to something that becomes more strategic um in your approach to c by c reporting which means you know as and and uh Uh, Phil alluded to this, and it means organisations, you've got to be comfortable with, you know, your C-by-C data going public. You need to be comfortable that your C-by-C data actually fits multiple purposes, including, you know, BEPS Pillar 2, Safe Harbour Now. It's not just reporting. It's using it for, you know, some type of risk analysis. Um, You know, you've got to be comfortable that, um, you know, do you need to revisit your corporate governance processes that Phil talked about? um you need to work with you know your corporate affairs team on communication strategy you know with your external stakeholders no longer just the revenue authorities if you're going public it's now like your civil society groups and the NGOs um you know I, I it was actually just interesting listening to what Phil said there I was at the ASPAC conference uh KPMG ASPAC tax summit last week and um I ran a ESG transparency session and there were a few uh, clients on the panel and um what they said is, yes, we've got, you know, we're actually ha- ahead of the curve at the moment in terms of tax transparency reporting, but now we've got these mandatory requirements, you know, EU, C by C, Australia, CFIC that's coming. But the question is, you know, do they stick with what's in the legal framework or do they actually do a bit more? Because it's a fine balance with resources. Resources come into play. And once you start doing more, you're on a treadmill. You know, you can't go on next year and say, well, I'm not doing this anymore. You, you have to keep doing it once you've decided to disclose more. Um so there's some type of you know corporate affairs strategic type decisions you've got to make there as well. And um, another multinational group said to me, well, you know they started to automate parts of their tax reporting now, um, with an aspiration, say in 12 months' time, to not only report CYC data in accordance with legislation, but use that data in real time in a strategic way to you know assess whether they fall below you know BEPS global safe harbor minimum. So it's just not just reporting now; it's doing that sort of analysis using the CYC data. Um, so, there there's some of the key points from me, Pete, on, on that on your question.
1: Good thinking. Good, uh, good thoughts there, Jenny. Tim, um, your final thoughts of what group should be doing?
0: Oh, it's, it's similar to, Jen, stakeholder engagement. It, it is what it really comes down to. You need to be talking to your CFO. This is going to take time. You need a budget. You need to be talking to your CEO. This goes beyond tax technical. You require a broader strategy. You need to be talking to your operational teams, globally, and you need to be keeping abreast of the rules and how they interact and intersect with other uh, local and international developments. The intangibles one was just one of many examples. BEPS 2.0 is another. Start engaging, start communicating, it's, it's coming and it will need to be done sooner rather than later. If there's one thing we know from the C by C experience was that there was a lot of uh, what I'll call uh, excitement for want of a better phrase at the beginning and then people kind of left it because they thought it was um, a long way away. This, is, this goes beyond a tax administration seeing it goes around to the whole world. So you need to get your stakeholders lined up now. You need to get um, all of your ducks in a row and be ready. And so my main thing to, I would say to clients right now is even if you don't want to start putting pen to paper, so to speak, start talking to your stakeholders. Thanks, Pete.
3: Very
1: sensible. And Phil, finish with you for your final thoughts.
0: Yeah.
3: No, thanks, Peter. I think, you know, stakeholder engagement will be critical. And the an example of that will be thinking through what will be the governance model required for this new reporting requirement, what reviews, what validation will be required. And I think some of that will only be possible to determine once we see the legislation, of course, and see what's required. But yeah, that may take a little while to line up and, and, and engage on and arrange on a global basis. So that's the um, maybe the glass half-empty perspective. But I, I think I'm a I'm a positivist and I see this as an opportunity also for tax functions to, you know, further prove their strategic worth to an organization, uh, helping comply with these requirements, but also helping position taxes as a support to their ESG you know, objectives and the narrative. And it can be in you know, a holistic, but also quite, can be quite specific. You know, for instance, Standard and Poor's have quite a few tax indices now in the sustainability indices. So, so linking what we're doing here from a compulsory tax point of view, that may support um, wider um, interests and investor interests, whether it be through um, retail investment or institutional investors, will be you know an important consideration for for some, not all, but certainly worthwhile to take the opportunity to demonstrate how tax is, is really core to an organisation and is only becoming more more critical. So I think that's a that's a that's a positive aspect of these new reporting obligations, which though will nevertheless require effort and time.
1: I like that, Phil, and I think that's the right note to end this on because there is a positive aspect here. Whilst this is coming and there's much to be done, um, tax more and more is around data and information um, and being able to gather that and transform the way you get it, as Jenny mentioned in her conversations at our ASPAC Tax Summit, really positions tax in a way that it has a lot of business information that can be very useful, not just for the way tax you know, the tax department does what it needs to do around compliance, tax reporting, um, structuring a strategy, but the organization as a whole. So there's an opportunity to think about that broadly um, and, and take a really positive note about that. Thank you, team. It's been great talking to you all today. Um, uh, for everyone out there, I hope you enjoyed listening to us today. We always welcome feedback and any questions, so please do send them through. And otherwise, we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash or follow our LinkedIn page, KPMG Tax Now Insights for regular updates. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.